Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Warm welcome to First Move, everyone. Great to have you with us today for another jam-packed show Filled with central bank rate hike action, France and Argentina World Cup final traction, also Harry and Meghan Netflix series reaction. Topping our financial headlines today, an end-of-year flurry of interest rate hikes. The European Central Bank and the Bank of England both raising borrowing costs by half a percent, one day after similar action by the Fed. Both the ECB and the BOE taking the U.S. central bank's lead and slowing the size of hikes. But Fed Chair Jay Powell also making it crystal clear that rates will stay higher for longer, with inflation still three times higher than his 2 percent target. The inflation data received so far for October and November show a welcome reduction in the monthly pace of price increases. But it will take substantially more evidence to give confidence that inflation is on a sustained downward path. And it's not just central banks. We've also got breaking economic news out of the U.S. with retail sales falling by a greater than expected six-tenths of a percent last month. Lots for investors to react to. U.S. stocks on track for a sharply lower open. That's after a weaker post-Fed close on Wednesday. Europe struggling as well. Also, dismal Chinese data, meanwhile, pressured Asian stocks with the Hang Seng snapping a two-day rally. Chinese retail sales plunging almost 6% last month. Industrial production also coming in light, and the jobless rate remains elevated. More on China's substantial economic and health challenges in just a moment. But first, no holiday cheer from global central bankers. Policymakers making it crystal clear that their war on inflation is not one yet, delivering a rate hike trifecta in just the past 24 hours. Fed Chair Powell warning of weak economic growth next year as well. Paula Monica is with me now. So, Paul, look, on the one hand, you have peak inflation behind us. On the other hand, you have Chairman Powell making it very clear they're not done yet. And I think investors were hoping for a bit more dovish language, but they didn't get it. Yeah, they did not get it at all, Rahel. And I think what's even more worrisome is you got to look past what Jay Powell said in the press conference and, and what the Fed said in its statement A lot of people are really obsessing over the latest economic projections from the Fed and that so-called dot plot. The dots moved higher, which means that the Fed expects more interest rates probably in the early part of 2023, which will lift rates more than what Wall Street was anticipating. And the forecast, the projections for the economy they sound kind of stagflationary, which is not good news. They lowered their GDP growth forecast to just 0.5% in 2023, which is not much growth at all. But they also raised the inflation forecast, their uh, you know, preferred metric of uh, you know, uh, PCE. That's up a little bit, even though inflation pressures are coming down. And they also raised their unemployment rate projection. So not good economic forecasts at all. And I think investors are nervous about that. 
at all. And it's funny, Paul, because when Powell was asked yesterday about those projections and the summary of economic projections and would that technically be recessionary, he sort of pushed back and said, well, no one really knows whether it'll be a shallow recession, whether it'll be, you know, what type of recession. It's really unknowable. What we do know, however, is that retail sales just crossed about 30 minutes ago also not painting the best picture. Retail sales falling as American consumers really pulled back. What more can you tell us about that, Paul? Yeah, that retail sales uh, number was a bit of a surprise, Rahel. There was the expectation that retail sales would dip a little bit in November, but it was a much more pronounced drop. There are a couple of things at play, though. For one, you have to keep in mind that retail sales in October were very robust. So was it a case of consumers trying to beat the holiday shopping madness and spending a lot in October instead of November? Obviously, a lot of inflation headlines back then, too. So maybe consumers also figured, let's buy now before prices maybe go up even more, even though prices have finally started to come down. So that's one thing. Another bright spot in the economy is that the job market is still healthy also. So jobless claims came in this morning, weekly jobless claims. They were much lower than forecast, lowest since September So the consumer, in theory, should still be healthy, but they're more wary. So I think that those reservations are going to keep Wall Street on edge as well, Rahel. Absolutely. It's just another example of on any given day, we get sort of conflicting data points, right? On the one hand, you have retail sales falling and sort of raising some eyebrows about what that means for the health of the consumer. On the other hand, you get jobless claims uh, falling to a level that we haven't really seen in quite some time. Paula Monica, wonderful to have you. Thank you. Moscow now warning Washington that a possible shipment of Patriot missile systems to Ukraine would lead to, quote, unpredictable circumstances and threaten global security. It describes the potential move as a provocative step by the Biden administration. Will Ripley is in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev with the latest. So, Will, what can you tell us about this system, these Patriot missile systems, and why they would be so significant to Ukraine to provoke the type of strong reaction we're hearing from Russia? Here in Kiev, the Ukrainian government has essentially been pounding their fists on the table for months and months, saying that these Patriot missile defense systems are badly needed in this country, given the nearly constant Russian bombardment uh, targeting the power grid. This is a dire situation for millions of people across Ukraine and communities that have been plunged into the dark and cold. UNICEF is now saying that these Russian strikes on critical infrastructure are putting the physical and mental health of nearly every single child in Ukraine at risk. These are kids who are, their school is interrupted. Uh, Their normal way of living is interrupted when they are just forced to sit for hours or even days on end in their homes uh, under conditions uh, that they shouldn't be living in. certainly not as uh, the official start of winter now is just days away and temperatures are really plummeting across many parts of Ukraine. And then of course here in Kyiv, you also have uh, the concern uh, out, you know, based on on, on the fact that Moscow has been threatening that if these Patriot missile defense systems arrive, they will be target number one for the Russians. The uh, Russian embassy in Washington uh, warned of unpredictable consequences if these missiles uh, arrive here. Now, I should say that while there's always concern about what the Russians might be planning, this is all the more justification from the Ukrainian perspective to bring these weapon systems in as soon as possible to defend against these Russian attacks, despite the threats from Moscow of the unpredictable consequences, because of course they're aiming those threats not just here at Kyiv, but at NATO and at the United States. Now, there is an additional 
addition to this rhetorical escalation over the Patriot systems, there's also been escalations on the front lines to the east in Donetsk, where the Ukrainian side launched uh, what the Russian-backed officials in occupied Donetsk are describing as their worst attack since 2014. Uh, You also have the Russians uh, firing uh, very, very fiercely, as they have now for days, bombarding uh, the city that they once occupied, Kherson. It was liberated by the Ukrainians. Uh, They are now, uh, you know, the Ukrainian people who are living there, while they are living uh, with freedom, they're also living with the constant threat of Russian bombardment there. And these uh, shelling attacks have been fatal uh, down in the south in Kherson. So you have fighting on the front lines. You have rhetorical fighting over these Patriot missile defense systems. And you have growing concern about the human rights of children in this country. I should also mention by the fact the fact that Human Rights Watch earlier this week put out a report saying that in Kherson, the Russians have been using cluster munition warheads, which of course are potentially very fatal for civilians because when they explode, they basically release dozens or even hundreds of submunitions over uh, an area the size of a football field. Ukraine has also been asking the United States for those very same weapons, just a sign of how ugly this brutal and unnecessary war that Russia started really is as we now go on more than nine months of this war. Well, Ripley there, live force in Kiev. Thank you. Turn to Netflix now, releasing the much-anticipated final three episodes of the Harry and Meghan docuseries today. CNN royal correspondent Max Foster is live in London with the details. Max, great to have you. So, I mean, lots of headlines coming from the last few episodes. Meghan saying that not only did she feel like she was being thrown to the wolves, she felt like she was being fed to the wolves. Harry saying that he believes that maybe the royal family was jealous of all of the popularity. I mean, what has surprised you considering you've been covering the royal family for so long? Well, just um, really the insight into really what happened behind the scenes as they decided to leave and the pressure that they felt uh, from the system, particularly the palace in this three episodes and also the family. So uh, try to summarize what is a huge amount of uh, information really within the three hours. But uh, here are some of the highlights or lowlights, however you want to look at them. And what she said to me was, it's like this fish is like swimming perfectly powerful it's on the right current and then one day this little organism comes in the second installment has landed harry and megan's netflix docuseries latest drop could prove to be a lot more explosive than the last time round. and the entire thing goes what is that what is it doing here it doesn't look like us it doesn't move like us we don't like it get it off of us While the piece starts with fond recollections of their wedding, it goes on to accusations that the institution became jealous of the couple during their triumphant tour of Australia in 2018. The issue is when someone who's marrying in who should be a supporting supporting act is then stealing the limelight or is doing the job better than the person who was born to do this. That upsets people, it shifts the balance. For Meghan, her claims of jealousy, media intrusion, lack of protection from the palace, even leaking of negative stories was too much. The stress of the coverage, she says, triggering a miscarriage and even suicidal thoughts. All of this will stop if I'm not here. And that was the scariest thing about it, is it was such clear thinking. I remember her telling me that, that she had wanted to take her own life, and um, and that really broke my heart. I was devastated. I, I knew that she was struggling, we were both struggling, but I never thought that it would get to that stage. 
And the fact that it got to that stage, I felt angry and ashamed. In late 2019, Harry says conversations were leaked between him and his father about Meghan and Harry taking reduced roles and leaving the UK. In early 2020, they issued their own statement laying out their plans, which culminated in a family row at the Queen's Sandringham estate between Harry, William, Charles and the Queen. It was terrifying to have my brother um, scream and shout at me and my father say things that just simply weren't true and, and my grandmother, you know, quietly sit there and, and sort of take it all in. A year later, ahead of their bombshell interview with Oprah Winfrey, a story leaked that Meghan had bullied her palace staff. To see this institutional gaslighting that happens is, is extraordinary. Um, and that's why everything that's happened to us was always going to happen to us. Because if you speak truth to power, that's how they respond. Harry speaking out for his wife, but also his mother. Buckingham Palace and Kensington Palace say they won't be responding to the Netflix series. Instead, senior royals will continue with their planned public engagements. Jealousy, lies, backstabbing. It's all there, isn't it, Rahel? But this is real life and it is the head of state's family here in the UK. So it will have repercussions. We shall see. Max Foster, great to have you. Thank you. Well, a new round of Tesla stock sales. Elon Musk sold more than $3.5 billion worth of the company's stock this week, bringing the total selling to nearly $40 billion over the past year. Shares of Tesla are down in the pre-market after closing at the lowest level in two years. The stock is down about 60 percent this year. And Musk, of course, also the owner of Twitter, has suspended an account that tracked the location of his private jet. That is despite his pledge to keep it up for free speech. The Twitter account was run by a 20-year-old college student in Florida, and he was on CNN this morning. Take a listen. It's completely unbelievable from the first message to him. You know, I just thought at some point it would end, and it just keeps going on and on. Um, I thought after, especially after the my commitment to free speech tweet, that I'd be fine, but he's changed his view. I think he, whoever the owner is, it doesn't matter. They can ban what they don't like. I mean... Not just me, they're banning other flight tracking people um, who are mentioning his plane's tail number I've seen within after me and all that. The move comes after Twitter announced new restrictions about sharing someone's current location. Surging COVID cases in China have turned parts of the capital into a ghost town, even as strict COVID measures have been mostly lifted. The government says it's no longer trying to track every case, but hospitals and clinics are seeing waves of new patients. CNN's Selena Wang has details. COVID lockdowns are finally over in China. But the irony is that here in Beijing, it still feels like we're stuck in one. Streets are empty. Many stores are closed. Businesses are struggling to stay open because so many people have COVID. It's spreading extremely fast here in Beijing, and authorities say it's spreading rapidly across the country. But we don't know just how fast. Authorities said they've given up on counting all cases, since there's no way to gauge the number of infections now with people avoiding official tests and staying at home. Here in Beijing, the number of patients going to fever clinics jumped 16 times this Sunday compared to a week before. Authorities also said the number of calls to the emergency hotline have jumped six times. 
So here in China, there isn't a strong primary care system, so it's common to rush to the hospital even for minor illnesses. So it's no surprise we're already seeing long lines forming outside of hospitals. Authorities are now scrambling to increase the number of fever clinics and ICU wards, pledging as well to boost the lagging vaccination rate for the elderly population. The fear from experts I speak to is not how this plays out in Beijing, but the potential devastation that could happen when COVID hits the rural areas with weak medical infrastructure. Take a listen to what Shi Tin, an associate professor at the Yale School of Public Health, had to say. China has around like twenty-eight hundred counties. Many counties uh, uh, do not have any ICU beds, and even they have beds, but they do not have medical doctors to serve. And now people across China are left to fend for themselves. People are rushing to stock up on fever and cold medicine. But interestingly, canned peaches are also flying off the shelves after rumors circulated that canned peaches can treat COVID. In videos that have gone viral on social media, canned peach factories are talking about how they're working overtime to meet demand. One factory said orders had jumped by tenfold. Searches for canned peaches have surged more than 2,700% on China's search engine Baidu in the past week. It has gotten to the point where state media is now publishing articles stating that the food has no medicinal effect or ability to cure COVID. I spoke to a health expert who said this whole canned peach craze reflects the lack of communication between health authorities and the public, and it shows just how unprepared people feel that they're willing to follow the hype of canned peaches as a home remedy. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. And straight ahead, it's not just a big week for the Federal Reserve. There are moves from central banks in the UK and the EU. We'll look at those next. Plus. Celebrity exposure to the FTX scandal. We will look at what it means for stars like Super Bowl champion Tom Brady. We'll be right back. Welcome back. A wave of winter strike action is underway in Britain with nurses joining railway workers, postal employees, teachers and university staff walking off the job. It is the largest strike in the nursing union's 106 year history and follows years of real term pay cuts. Scott McLean joins me now from London. So, Scott, as I said, it's the nurses today, but joining a whole slew of other industries. I mean, it's it seems like there are strikes everywhere. Walk us through what's going on. Yeah, so not only the nurses, but you mentioned some of the other unions, postal workers, baggage handlers, border employees. Once you add up all of the unions that are going on strike, and I'm sure I've missed many of them, uh, it's some 20 plus days of strike action across the country expected. Uh, And so even if you're not paying attention, even if you're not watching the news, surely you will be uh, feeling some of these uh, these strikes in in whatever government services that you happen to be using. Now, in terms of the nurses, remember when we were all out on our balconies, banging pots and pans, clapping for the nurses? Well, that was almost three years ago. And nurses in this country are now saying, look, if you really appreciate us, you ought to put your money where your mouth is. And so, as you said, up to 100,000 nurses walking out today, the first time in the history of the union that this has actually happened. Now, if you've ever been to a hospital, of course, you know that nurses are kind of an essential part of the equation. So how on earth do you have nurses walking off the job? Well, the law in this country says that, look, nurses are free to walk off the job, provided that no one's life inside of a hospital or healthcare environment is put in jeopardy. 
how you define that specifically is somewhat of a gray area that is negotiated and determined on a case-by-case -case basis. But broadly speaking, if you walk into a hospital profusely bleeding, there will be enough staff to take care of you. But if you have a more minor or an elective surgery, well, you might not be covered. Also keep in mind that in this country, Rahel, not all uh, nurses belong to a union, and of course, not all hospital regions have actually voted to strike. So the nurses are asking for almost 20%. The government is only offering just over 4%. Um, the nurses are obviously asking for a lot more than inflation. The government is offering much less. Inflation right now sits at 10.7% at last count. And the head of the union says that, look, she would like to be negotiating with the government to find, try to find some compromise. But the government uh, is open to talking about plenty of things, but it's not open to talking about pay. Here is Pat Cullen, the head of the Royal College of Nurses on the picket line right across the road from the British Parliament earlier today. We're here because this government has turned its back on, on nursing. And when they turn their back on nursing, they've turned their back on patients and they've turned their back on the NHS. We have to acknowledge that we're only here because we've been pushed to this. We have been pushed to this occasion right now of being on strike. And there will be further strikes. But we have to acknowledge that we aren't here by choice and that we've done, not done this on an easy whim. There is inflation. The NHS is under threat from this Tory government. This is the right time to strike. We need coordinated action across many different sectors. Um, and I completely support the nurses in this. So, Rahel, the government's line is that, look, we have to balance what nurses are demanding, what we would like to pay nurses with the financial realities that uh, this government has found itself in, having to pay out uh, really record sums of money just to balance the books, given the inflation pressures and the other pressures in the economy right now. One of the other or one more thing to mention just very quickly is that the Bank of England, of course, raised its base interest rate today by half a percentage point. So now the base rate is three and a half percent. And the Bank of England statement didn't specifically address these strikes, but it did say, quote, domestic wage pressures are elevated. In other words, big pay bumps for public sector unions probably aren't helping uh, bring down the cost of inflation. So perhaps that's one of the thing that is factoring into the government's decision making here. And I believe, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but wages are up about 6% over the last year in the UK. So certainly perhaps more than central bankers there would, would like with inflation being in the double digits, as you pointed out, Scott. Scott McLean, thank you. Let's stay with now the UK and the Bank of England. As Scott just said, increasing interest rates as it tries to cool high inflation. It lifted rates by 50 basis points or half a percent to 3.5 percent. That is the ninth increase in a row. Meanwhile, the European Central Bank, the ECB, raised its key rate by the same amount to 2 percent. Callum Pickering is Berenberg Bank's senior economist and joins me now. Callum, wonderful to have you. I want to start where Scott just left off with the strikes that we're seeing in the UK. I mean, how much of a concern are all of these strikes for wages, which, as I said, and correct me if I'm wrong, are up about 6% over the last year? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, they're up 6% in cash terms, but they're down about 4% in, in real terms because of the inflation rate. Uh, of course, as economists, we always want real wages to be 
rising, that of course is a good thing, and it, we don't really mind who is achieve, who's enjoying those high, higher wages. The problem is at the moment we have a very supply constrained economy, and therefore if we give people more money, they actually don't get more stuff. You just get more inflation, and so there's not really much you can do to raise real living standards, even if you try to do that through increasing wages, until these supply issues start to resolve themselves. It's a similar picture that we are also experiencing here in the U.S. with wages up about 5 percent. But in real terms, they're actually negative because of inflation, as you point out. So, look, it appears that both in the U.S., the U.K., in the ECB, in the euro area, that peak inflation is behind us, which on the one hand is good news. But it appears that these rate hikes are not done. So, I mean, do you think that is the right approach or do you think that now is the right time for these central bankers who have already been quite aggressive to take a beat, to yeah. slow down and sort of just, yeah. you know, look at the scenery a bit. It, 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 it's the right question to ask at this stage, because as you mentioned, inflation has peaked and monetary policy works with a lag. And therefore, we've got to wait to see what the previous tightening actually does to inflation. Um, in the UK, I think the Bank of England's close, if not there, actually. The ECB has signaled it's going to go further. The Fed needs to go a bit further than both the ECB and the Bank of England, just because the US economy on the demand side is much stronger. And therefore, you would expect actually the longer run inflation risk to be a bit higher. And so the Fed probably needs to be a bit more aggressive. But again, we talk about inflation, but what we really want is more goods and services. That's the solution to all of this. Central banks can bring down demand, but they weaken living standards by doing this. What we need is the global energy problem to ease up, the global food problem to ease up for some of those still lagging issues around COVID and supply chains to just ease up. Once we get through these three issues, then the world starts to look more normal. Inflation comes down and central banks can bring interest rates down. So these interest rate moves are really a temporary measure. In the long run, the solution has to come from better supply side dynamics. Well, help me understand, I mean, how close are we in the UK, in the euro area broadly to getting back to supply chains that we saw before the pandemic? Because here in the U.S., it doesn't appear that a lot of the inflation is still being driven by physical goods or input prices. It appears to be more on the service side of it. What can you tell us about what's happening in the U.K.? Well, the services element is really the second round effect in Europe of the high goods prices, which are mainly import driven. You see, in the U.S., the big difference is that both President Trump and President Biden Um, maintained the economy through COVID with the stimulus checks. Um, In Europe, what we did is just maintain employment and wages. And the difference is that in the US, incomes actually increased substantially. In Europe, they didn't. And so that excess demand fed through very quickly into domestic price pressures. And that's where you see the pressure in services. In Europe, it's slightly different. Uh, Demand wasn't running so hot, but we have this imported inflation effect through energy prices. And because the economy was close to to full employment, as we would say, unemployment was low, employment was high, uh, that triggered higher inflation expectations, which is now starting to affect price setting in things like services. And so that domestic inflation is becoming a bit more embedded. And that's why central banks are are reacting. It's not a good outcome uh, inflation in any respect. Um, But I think we are getting towards a situation, at least in Europe, where within the next few months, inflation should start to fall fast and we should start to feel a bit better about all of this. Unfortunately, the price we're paying is a recession. Callum, help me understand, 
hopefully in the next year inflation starts to fall fast. I'm really curious what happens to unemployment, because as we heard Powell yep. say and continue to say, you know, job vacancies are high in the U.S. And you could argue yes. that it's the same in the U.K. But do you believe this idea, this theory that you can just pull from job vacancies without really triggering a lot of yep. joblessness? I mean, there there isn't a lot of evidence that it's been done before. Yeah, that's really the soft landing. Um, I, I don't feel confident around this outlook. Central banks are sophisticated institutions. They generally do quite a good job, but they are run by humans. And until we can really tell what the future holds, we will not be able to make perfect monetary policy decisions. And therefore, by our nature, we're pretty clumsy when it comes to interest rate changes. So my bet would be that in the end, we will see some rise in unemployment on both sides of the Atlantic. Now, it won't be as high as in previous recessions, because actually, we don't need a recession now. This is an exogenous shock coming from the war. Uh, without it, economies would be doing just fine. But in order to curb that inflationary pressure associated with the drop in output, we will see unemployment rise. Um, but it won't be a high unemployment recession, in my view. Well, here's hoping. Callum Pickering, great to have you. Thank you. He is a senior Thank you economist. so much. Thank you. At Berenberg Bank. And still to come, calling it quits. Speaking of labor, more men are leaving the American labor market. We find out why coming up next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday. Wall Street extending losses suffered in Wednesday's session after the Fed's warning of more rate hikes ahead. A weaker than expected read on U.S. retail sales. That's also not helping sentiment. Now, stocks in the news today include Tesla. Its shares are under pressure again amid fresh Elon Musk stock sales. Tesla currently down some 10 percent this week and more than 55 percent year to date. It's been an ugly year for Tesla. Drug maker Moderna on the rise again after substantial rallies Tuesday and Wednesday. That's due to growing optimism over its new skin cancer vaccine. Moderna shares meantime up some 50 percent the past three months. Now, the big driver of U.S. investor sentiment remains the outlook for Fed rate hikes. Christina Hooper joins me. She is the chief global market strategist at Invesco. Christina, wonderful to see you again. So, you know, I thought it was very interesting when Powell said yesterday, no one knows whether it will be short and shallow or something much more severe. So I I ask you this by prefacing that. I mean, what do you think, based on the most recent CPI data we've gotten after yesterday's meeting? I mean, what's the outlook looking like to you? So I haven't changed any of my views uh, since the ones I held earlier this week, before the CPI print and before the FOMC meeting and press conference. I do believe that we are seeing inflation moderate quite significantly. That doesn't mean that all components of inflation will moderate quickly. I think services will remain stubbornly high because there's such a large labor component to that. But in general, it's moving very much in the right direction. And I do believe the Fed is likely to hit the pause button in the first half of 2023 and could still very well do it in the first quarter of 2023, despite what we're hearing from Jay Powell. Keep in mind, he needs to talk down markets. He does not want to see a loosening of financial conditions prematurely because he doesn't want to see what happened in the late 70s and early 80s when the Fed wasn't able to fully stamp out um, high inflation um, before markets uh, got ahead of, of, um, of themselves. And so he wants to prevent that from happening. So his goal yesterday was to be a wet blanket. 
And I think a lot of people would argue that's exactly what he was. Well, Christina, I want to pick up where you left off there just in terms of not repeating history. Powell was asked if maybe they would consider stopping at 3% inflation. And at least from my vantage point, he appeared to bristle at the suggestion. I mean, do you think that it is still the best strategy moving forward to just keep plugging away until we get to 2% inflation, even if that means risking unnecessary pain? I don't believe that's the best strategy, and I don't think it's ultimately going to be the Fed's strategy, but they just can't reveal this because, again, he needs to tamp down enthusiasm at this point. Um, But the reality is that the Fed adopted a few years ago this concept of flexible average inflation targeting, Um, and, and that, I think, enables the Fed to be more tolerant and flexible, uh, especially in an environment like the one we're seeing today. If all signs point to uh, inflation getting back down to 2%, but that it's going to take some time, and if consumer inflation expectations for the longer term are well anchored, I think the Fed will ease up and I think it will hit the pause button. Hmm. That will be very interesting to see. Help me understand, Christina, what are the biggest drivers right now of inflation? We know goods prices have come down. We know commodity prices have come down. What is driving the inflation we're still seeing, do you think? What's driving inflation is services, because I do believe housing is is going to roll over. We're already starting to see weakness there. And that makes sense, given how high mortgage rates have gotten. Um, But the, the problem has been services because such a large component of services is labor. And we know it's an extremely tight labor market. Um, So that's going to continue to be problematic. Um, Also, we have to recognize, though, that labor is a lagging indicator. So that tends to be one of the last shoes to drop uh, when uh, an economic cycle um, moves into a slowdown, when uh, rates are, are have been have been raised significantly. Uh, so, so we should expect that will take some time. And again, that's, uh, that's part of my argument for why the Fed is likely to be tolerant if it's the services side of the inflation equation that remains stubbornly high. Well, I think it's an interesting point about labor being a lagging indicator because we've we've certainly been waiting for the shoe to drop, you know, in the labor market as economists and business reporters have been watching to see when are things going to take take a turn. And we got jobless claims today that actually came in much lower than expected. Christina, what to do about what I think could be structural changes in the labor market, right? I mean, there are millions of people who left the labor force that probably are not coming back. And you see it every jobs report with the labor force participation not budging. So, I mean, what to do about that? Well, one easy answer, of course, is is uh, loosening immigration controls, um, especially given where there really have been shortages in employees. Um, beyond that, um, what uh, what employers can do and what I think they're starting to do is not so much layoffs, but hiring freezes. Um, because at the end of the day, wage growth is driven by labor mobility as opposed to unemployment levels. And, and so I think there, there certainly could be some improvement um, in, in wage growth pressures if we see labor mobility come down, if we see job openings removed. Because right now, the JOLTS job openings are very, very elevated, more than 3 million above where we were pre-pandemic. Um, so that's one area um, where that that really creates a, a significant level of wage growth and where if we saw improvement there, uh, I think we could see improvement in, in wage growth. Christina, lastly, do you think that this 
potential recession just could look different than other recessions because of all of these pandemic factors that have just really done sort of strange things to the economy. And the reason why I ask is because, you know, we heard Powell say yesterday that companies are holding on to their workers because of how much demand and how hard it was to get workers. And so I sometimes question, I mean, might we just see a recession where unemployment really doesn't go up much because of sort of some of the pandemic factors we've just lived through? Oh, absolutely, Rahel. I think that is is very likely um, because we have a situation where where um, many, many households are certainly under pressure because of high inflation. But it's not the same kind of dire pressure that households are under when uh, there's unemployment. Um, so so um, we have people who are working. Um, real un- incomes are lower, um, but they're still uh, spending um, and they're still able to uh pay rents, pay mortgages, that kind of thing. So that, to me, leads to a rather shallow and brief recession. And, and you know, this is the kind of environment where I think we're going to continue to see companies hold on to employees. I mean, it's all through uh, the Federal Reserve Beige Book. You know, anecdotally, uh, companies are saying they don't want to lose workers. Many of them are operating skeletons, crews as it is. Uh, so, so this um, could very well be a, a jobful economic downturn, which is not like a high unemployment recession at all. It's just been really fascinating to watch. Christina Hooper, great to have your insights today. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there seems to be something missing from the American labor market. Men. New government data shows more men are leaving and more women are coming in, many of them taking up jobs in male-dominated fields. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich has the story. Good morning, Winston. Let's start the day. It's a typical day in the Schnitzler household. 17-month-old Winston is up, and parents David and Allison are getting ready for work. Winston is fed, there's some play, and then the morning goodbyes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. They're off to work. Have a good day. Allison, a family physician, and David, an insurance underwriter. Now, an at-home dad. Caring for Winston, tending to the house, um playing with him, all of that comes first. Last year, the Schnitzlers made a significant life change. We made that decision uh, to to have me stay home. David quit his job to take care of Winston full-time so Allison could continue her career. We're happy with the roles that we're in. It's phenomenal. And in recent months, more men ages 30 to 44 have been dropping out of the workforce, according to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The labor force participation rate for men in that age group is lower than it was pre-pandemic. I don't think it's a secret that many of us rethought our whole work-life balance. What were we doing? Who's raising the kids? How, how do we want our family to work? That's a question that a lot of families have been asking themselves. And more women in recent months, ages 30 to 44, are participating in the labor force and at a higher rate than pre-pandemic, according to Labor Department data. And they're moving into more male-dominated industries. The fears of a she-session turned out largely to be unfounded. The women are returning to the labor market. It's becoming increasingly common to see women, for example, having project management roles, or generally management positions within construction. Women like Ava Sedohat. I knew I wanted to work in construction management. Sedohat joined the construction industry two years ago as a project engineer. Today, women make up just 14% of the construction industry, but it's the highest on record. 
I think it was definitely intimidating. My only knowledge of the construction industry was that it was pretty heavy uh, and male-dominated. But the more that I started working in the industry and the more people I came into contact with, I think I realized pretty quickly on that there's a place for everyone in construction. Do you see the construction industry as where you want to build your career? Definitely. Early next year, the Schnitzlers will welcome baby number two, another boy. But that doesn't mean David is closing the door on rejoining the workforce one day. I won't say that I'm out of the workforce 100%, uh, you know, retired, what, what have you. Um, but for the time being, we want to give our second infant son the, the same thing that we gave to our first, and that is a parent who's able to give them 100%. And coming up on First Move, growing legal troubles. Why some celebrities are facing big lawsuits after the stunning ball of crypto exchange FTX. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Tom Brady, Gwyneth Paltrow, David Ortiz, and Jimmy Fallon, just some of the celebrities facing legal scrutiny and the aftermath of the FTX collapse. Christine Romans joins me now with the details. Christine, good morning. Good morning. You know, the FTX debacle has really brought a renewed focus on celebrities who have endorsed crypto. Sports figures and all kinds of powerful people are finding out that those high-profile crypto endorsements are bringing on the lawsuits. Disgraced FTX founder and former CEO Sam Bankman-Fried is in jail, accused of carrying out what a prosecutor called one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. Bankman-Fried earned the backing of prominent figures across Hollywood, sports and politics. I'm getting into crypto with FTX. You in? Now, several celebrities who endorse cryptocurrency are all under fresh legal scrutiny, including seven-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady, supermodel Giselle Bündchen, and four-time NBA champion Steph Curry. They are among some named in a class action lawsuit filed against Bankman-Fried last month after his company suffered a liquidity crisis, collapsed, and filed for bankruptcy. At least a million people can't access their funds. He is denying defrauding customers. The lawsuit alleges they did not properly disclose the scope and amount of compensation they personally received in exchange for the promotion of FTX. One of the plaintiffs in the proposed class action suit, Michael Leviriados, says, as a New England Patriots fan my entire life, you can imagine the influence that Tom Brady would have, claiming he moved nearly all his money from another crypto exchange to FTX. Adam Moskowitz, the lawyer representing the plaintiffs, told The Washington Post, you have very rich people we all love telling us that they checked this out and it was okay. Why shouldn't they be held responsible? This is just the tip of the iceberg for the crypto fallout. Another lawsuit was filed earlier this month by cryptocurrency investors against the NFT series Bored Ape Yacht Club. We're part of the same, we're part of the same community. We're yes. both apes. I love it. In the complaint, 37 defendants are named, including Paris Hilton, Jimmy Fallon, Justin Bieber, Madonna, Serena Williams, and again, Steph Curry. The lawsuit accuses the creators of enlisting A-listers to mislead their followers into buying bad investments at inflated prices. Actor Ben McKenzie testified before the Senate Banking Committee Wednesday, describing crypto as a bill of goods sold to tens of millions of Americans. They have been lied to in ways both big and small by a once seemingly mighty crypto industry whose entire existence in fact depends 
on misinformation, hype, and yes, fraud. None of the celebrities named in these lawsuits responded to CNN's request for comment. Fair to say, though, Rahel, uh, it's probably not best to take advice on your money from people who are in Hollywood or uh, in sports figures. Great piece of advice. Christine Romans, thank you. As the fallout continues there. And still to come, France makes it to the World Cup final for the second time in two tournaments. Can they do it again? Or will Lionel Messi lead Argentina to victory? All the action from Qatar coming up next. To the World Cup now, and France has secured their place in Sunday's final against Argentina. That's after beating Morocco 2-0 in Qatar. Fans poured onto the Champs-Élysées in Paris to celebrate the win. Joining me now is CNN World Sports' Don Rodell, who is live in Doha, uh, slightly calmer in Doha compared to Paris, based on what we just saw. Look, Don, after a World Cup of upsets, here we are, France, Argentina. I guess you could argue either way, history will be made. For sure, although it kind of feels like history versus destiny at this point. Of course, France are hoping to become the first team since Brazil back in 1962 to win back-to-back titles. The destiny lies on the side of Argentina and Lionel Messi. We all know that this is his fifth and he has now confirmed final World Cup match. He is going to make history just by playing in the final on Sunday because he'll have played more World Cup games than anyone else. But the destiny refers to this elusive World Cup trophy that he's been chasing his entire career. He's won everything else multiple times. Uh, But of course, he is regarded as one of the greatest all time. He is compared with his great compatriot Diego Maradona who did win the World Cup. So this is what Messi has to overcome if he wants to be finally kind of allowed into the uh, pantheon alongside the world world greats. Can he win the World Cup trophy as well? It's going to be a fascinating match. It really is. Mm, It sure will. And a lot of people rooting for him for those sentimental reasons, as you pointed out, Don. But also, we're not talking about Morocco anymore, but they did put up a good fight. I mean, walk me through how that all went down. Yeah, I mean... They were just brilliant throughout this tournament. They were so much fun for me personally to cover and follow and mingle with their fans. And of course, their fans weren't just Moroccan fans. They were fans from all over the region. And that was just so special to see them all come together. The atmosphere in the stadium last night was incredible. It was pretty much all Morocco at Albaid Stadium. Uh, And when it came down to the match, there was two goals in it, but there really wasn't that much between the two teams. The game didn't go to Morocco's plan they've done well in this tournament by being kind of cautious and then hitting teams on the break and and doing that very, very successfully. They conceded so early to the French, it kind of completely ruined their game plan. But we then saw what they were like when they had to just come out and play, and they were great. They really took the game to France. They had numerous chances. It was actually pretty even if you look at the stats. The difference was that they just didn't have somebody who could put the ball in the back of the net. And the French, of course, with all their experience and what they've achieved already, um, you know, They were just one step or half a step ahead, and that in the end was the difference. But Morocco and their fans can be so proud of what they've achieved at this World Cup. Heartbroken, but proud nonetheless. Here's hoping. Don Riddell, great to have you. Thank you. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Connect the World is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.